and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, always happy to have you aboard. I feel like it's almost routine now, the way I run through this uh, this little thing at the top of the show, but I really do want to welcome people because I think it's important that we're building some kind of a community uh, among you know, lefties, uh, progressives, but people with a with a political mind and with a constructive and critical outlook on what's going on around us today, because it seems from all sides to be an assault on literally every one of our senses, and uh, every day is a new low. And so, I think it's important that we maintain our spaces on the left, in the media, in the alternative media, and Counterpunch is doing precisely that. If you'd like to support Counterpunch, a great way to do that is to get a subscription to the print magazine. You can go right on the website, uh, fill out the little form there and you become a subscriber. You'll get the print magazine in the mail. And most importantly, you're a major part of keeping Counterpunch going, keeping not only the original content on the website every day, the original content in the print magazine, the podcasts and the books and the uh, the merchandise and all the other stuff that Counterpunch does. It's thanks to you guys. So really do appreciate your continued support. Uh, with that out of the way, I'm very happy to have somebody on the show whose work I followed for a long time. And I'm, I'm a great admirer of Dave Zirin is with me today. Dave is the sports editor at The Nation. He hosts The Nation's Edge of Sports podcast. He is also the co-author of the recent book, very very important reading, uh, "Things That Make White People Uncomfortable," co-authored with the great NFL star Michael Bennett. Uh, you can follow all of Dave's work on the website edgeofsports.com and on Twitter at edgeofsports. Dave Zirin, well, Dave Zirin. Welcome to, I told you I was going to have to unlearn that. It's all good, Eric. Don't Dave worry. Dave Zirin, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. I'll say you with, with total honesty, uh, my mom mispronounces it sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it was this long ass Russian name that got chopped at Ellis Island. And this is just the way my grandfather insisted it be pronounced. Well, there you go. Um, so I, I'm really happy to talk to you today because, frankly, there's just so much to talk about. Um, obviously, there's many sports-related stories in the headlines, and it's not really so much the sports, rather the way in which the sports really reflects some of the political challenges and political uh, conflicts of our time. And I guess we could kind of start with maybe the biggest uh, sports-related story as it pertains to social justice and, and political questions, and that of course, is Colin Kaepernick and uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, well, essentially being blacklisted from the NFL for his political speech. So uh, if you could just really quickly give us a quick little nutshell summary of what happened with Kaepernick, what did he do and what what did that cause? What kind of a situation did that cause? But really, my question is about impact. Uh, as we look back a couple of years since the whole Kaepernick story began, uh, has Kaepernick made a lasting impact on the NFL and on society. Oh, yeah, absolutely to the second question, but let's start to the, with the first. Um, when telling the Kaepernick narrative, it's so important to start in the summer of 2016 where you had the police murders of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge and Philando Castile in the Twin Cities. Uh, when those took place, I mean, there, it really reached a, another level in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and it really reflected itself in the world of sports, particularly in the WNBA. 
So this ferment was existing in the summer of 2016. A lot of athletes were talking about it on social media. A lot of athletes are from Baton Rouge in particular, and we're speaking about the experience of growing up uh, in the land that Katrina hit so hard and police violence in the aftermath, which is the aftermath is really what, what the time in which they were raised. Um, it's hard to even realize, you know, Katrina at that point was, was 11 years earlier. Uh, so all of this tumult was going on. And if you'd asked me at that time to list the top 100 athletes that were going to make a seismic impact on the political side of sports, I don't think I would have listed Colin Kaepernick in that top 100 because he wasn't one of those athletes who was posting like Black Lives Matter on social media or, or black fist emojis. He wasn't doing anything like that. But when I went back and looked at his social media uh, after the fact, uh, what I saw was that he was posting a lot of longer form articles about very deep subjects regarding systemic racism and oppression. So he was, you know, he was educating himself like in rapid fire time about these issues um, as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, to what was happening in society. All of that is, is an important starting point for that moment in August 2016 in the preseason where he didn't take a knee, but he sat during the national anthem. And it was actually a Marine who and former NFL player uh, who convinced him to take a knee instead of just sitting because and th this uh, particular gentleman was, was, shall we say, a tad naive. He thought people would take it as less a sign of disrespect to the flag. He would basically, he would anger the right wing less if he took a knee instead of taking a seat. But instead taking that knee, I mean, was something that drove the, the alt-right in this country and beyond really, drove them batshit crazy. Uh, and not because he was disrespecting the flag or disrespecting the anthem, but because he was bringing uh, radical anti-racist politics into a sphere that did not normally express those ideas. And so all the people who would tune into the NFL, white people in particular, who would tune into the NFL on Sunday to forget their troubles, were then confronted with this narrative of this athlete who is saying, wait a minute, if I'm good enough to cheer, then I'm also good enough uh, for you to listen to what I have to say. If Black Lives Matter on the field, then they need to matter off the field as well. And the immediate impact of this was really intense. It didn't just involve other NFL players taking a knee. Um, I mean, to me, the way where the impact was felt most uh, intensely was in high schools, middle schools, soccer teams, women's lacrosse teams, cheerleaders, school marching bands, all these folks taking a knee during the anthem, whether it was in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick or in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And this was so remarkable to me because we think of sports either as an apolitical space or sometimes even as a reactionary space, you know, a place where the values of hyper-nationalism, imperialism uh, are, are really rung up to a fever pitch, not to mention sexism, corporatism, everything. You know, played in these stadiums that are uh, oftentimes you know just products of of the public till and, and in corporate welfare, and all of a sudden the sports field becomes a site of radical dissent. All of a sudden, people are tuning in on Sunday to see where the protests are going, not just where the standings are going to be. So this was remarkable, without question. And of course, for for doing that, uh, Colin Kaepernick, even though he's in my opinion, one of the dozen best quarterbacks in the National Football League. And even though in his last season he threw for 16 touchdowns and only four interceptions, 
uh, he's found himself without work the last two seasons. Um, an absolute uh, horrible case of collusion uh, lined up against him. But I think the impact is still, to get to the second question, like the impact is still being felt in, in, in such a, an interesting way. Because even though Colin Kaepernick's not in the league, there's, an, I think, a different balance of forces that are taking place right now between the players and ownership. Because their CBA, their collective bargaining agreement, is about to come up, and they've already started their renegotiating process. And you get the feeling that players, particularly black players who make up 70% of the league, have much more of a sense of their own power and their own platform than they had before Colin Kaepernick. And I think that's a legacy that's not going anywhere. There's no doubt about that. And in fact, I think that this is one of those things when decades later will be looked back upon and, and, and really kind of seen as sort of a litmus test of uh, those people who were on the right side and those people who were on the wrong side, quite, quite similar to, you know, Muhammad Ali and some of the other polarizing figures of their day. I totally agree. Uh, Jamel Hill had a great line where she said, in 30 years, the NFL will have a community service award named after Colin Kaepernick. And we're all going to have to go through the effort in 30 years. God, it's going to be it's going to be so annoying. But we're going to have to go through the effort in 30 years to remind everybody like we have to do with Ali that not all these people who are praising him uh, were on the right side of history. No doubt about it. Now, the, the, the question that, of course, I think is is related to this from a political and a sociological perspective, I suppose, is whether or not you think that Colin Kaepernick would have become this outsized figure that he became, this giant uh, in the headlines he, that he became, were it not for this sort of serendipity of Donald Trump running for president and becoming president uh, at the same time. I mean, is the Trump effect uh, an amplifier of Kaepernick? And to what extent has it kind of exploded the issue? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, Kaepernick was absolutely electric news across the globe, not just in the United States, the moment he started taking that knee. And that happened three months before the election. And then it became like an actual election issue. So it was already tied up in, in all of the Trump-Clinton back and forth. Of course, uh, Hillary Clinton did nothing to defend Colin Kaepernick, which only opened the door for Donald Trump uh, to go even further on the attack against him. Um, so all of that was at play. And I think what Trump did, was what, which, what he's so good at with his lizard brain, with his reptilian brain, is... You know, he identified what Kaepernick was doing and what other NFL players were doing as a place where he could divide and demonize and distract from whatever it is he wanted to distract us from that, but whatever scandal was bubbling that particular week. And so going after Kaepernick, which he first, which he did uh, most famously when he called the NFL players SOBs, um, that was done in Alabama. Uh, so before an audience that, was only too happy to hear him go after these quote unquote ungrateful black athletes, which I have to add is like a really old trope. I mean, this goes back in politics to Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion of calling on black athletes to be grateful for their own accomplishments. I mean, we don't ask that of CEOs. We don't ask that of Jeff Bezos, but we ask that of black athletes that they actually show gratitude for the skills that they have developed to achieve against odds that somebody like Bill Gates could not have imagined. So all of that was at work. So he did receive uh, something uh, of 
I, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it a Trump bump because one of the things that resulted in was tons of more death threats against him and his family and all the rest of it. So there was like all of, all of this terrible um, backlash that occurred against him that made his life worse. You know, that's nothing that, you know, I, I want to say was a good thing. But one of the things that it did in polarizing the issue is that it did also force, I would argue, white people to take a side. Because one of the things that was, was so mistaken is people kept talking about how this issue has polarized NFL fans. But when you look in the, in the, in the numbers, it didn't really polarize fans. It polarized white fans. Because black fans were saying, yeah, players should have every right to protest during the national anthem. They should, they should have every right to protest racial um, inequality, racial inequity. Uh, they, they can do that if they want to. And uh, it was white fans that were being really forced to take a side. And the fact that Kaepernick was imposing that space upon them uh, was something that, that just absolutely infuriated, absolutely infuriated uh, the, the power um, uh, people. I mean, in all Trump's base in particular. What's really interesting about the Kaepernick story, too, aside from the obvious political context and all of the other interesting nuances to the story, is the fact that Kaepernick himself is part of the, I guess you could say, uh, multifaceted nature of this issue. Number one, Kaepernick is black and a quarterback, which already raises a lot of historically racist and and, and, and racialized uh, ideas within the football world and within sports in general. Secondly, Kaepernick comes from a mixed background. He was also raised by uh, adoptive parents. There's a lot of identity questions, a lot of uh, racial and uh, self, um, I guess you could say self-image questions. A whole bunch of these types of issues come up with Kaepernick, and he He's been so open about talking about all of those and making them part of this broader discourse. To me, that's a somewhat underappreciated angle of this story. I I agree with you a thousand percent. Um, And particularly during that season where he faced to get up against reporters every week and spoke about different aspects of why he was doing what he was doing. And he would wear T-shirts that had icons of the past. Like, I mean, we're talking from Muhammad Ali to a shirt that made Miami. I mean, he went to Miami with a shirt that had Malcolm X and Fidel Castro shaking hands. I mean, you go into Miami with that. I mean, you might as well be um, holding up a, a a raw steak in front of a, of a pit bull. And yet, you know, that's what Kaepernick was willing to do during that magical political season. And his openness about his own identity um, is something that he's, he's, he, I mean, he's not as public right now, but I've seen him do these uh, know your rights camps. Uh, I've, I've witnessed them for, for young kids that he does in different uh, inner cities around the country for, for kids who um, are at risk. And when he speaks to them, um, he speaks to them very clearly about what it is about, about his African culture that makes him, that, that he draws strength from. And he says to these young people, he says, I'm trying to teach you how to navigate oppression. And they go through all of these uh, drills and study sessions over the course of a day on everything from financial literacy to dietary literacy to political literacy. And, you know, it doesn't allow media into these things. They're not done for anybody but for the kids themselves. And they really are remarkable. No doubt about it. And the other question related to uh, – 
football that I kind of want to ask you because, um, well, because it's it's important in the news and also because it's one of a number of reasons why I've really just become totally turned off from the NFL and turned off from football as a sport. Uh, and that has to do with CTE, which is, of course, the uh, the chronic uh, trauma. I think it's chronic trauma encephalopathy or so, yeah. something to that effect. Chronic uh, encephalopathy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so basically what that is for listeners who don't follow this issue, this is repeated blows to the head over long periods of time, which cause this condition, which can lead to very severe depression and oftentimes ends very tragically for the people really badly afflicted by it. Uh, But the issue to me is one of the NFL because it seems almost an existential crisis for the NFL because it calls into question the safety of the sport itself, not just the equipment, not just a certain kind of hit or a certain type of, uh, you know, collision, but rather the sport in and of itself. Um, So I'd like to just ask you, to what extent do you think CTE really is an existential crisis for the NFL? And what is the way in which the NFL has handled it? Tell us about this league. Oh, my God. I, there's so, science is not a friend of the National Football League. Because the more we know about the sport, the more we realize that the dangers are inherent to the sport. It's like smoking. You, know, it's a, you can have a tar-free cigarette. You can smoke an American spirit if you like. Uh, but smoking is still dangerous no matter what kind of packaging you put on it. The NFL can tinker with its helmets, with its tackling rules. It's still going to be a dangerous sport that has, as the union says, a 100% injury rate. That's not going to change. And when you put CT on top of the, CTE on top of that, uh, it becomes something that more and more parents are keeping their kids away from. And that's the root of the existential crisis that I do know exists in the National Football League. In their penthouse offices on Park Avenue, you know, where, where, where they meet and talk, they talk about whether, whether or not this league is going to be viable, not in two or three years, but in 20 or 30 years. And I'll tell you what a big game changer is going to be is currently – they can't tell whether you have CTE until they perform an autopsy on you. You know, they crack open your skull and look at your brain tissue, and then they can tell whether or not you have CTE. And in the tragic cases of youth, uh, either suicide or 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 just or just death, uh, you've seen like again uh, the Cincinnati Bengals receiver Chris Henry, who I believe was just 26, and even some high school athletes who've taken their own life when they do the the CTE autopsies on them. They see evidence of CTE even at that young age, which really makes you wonder how much football it really takes to begin to develop these uh, deep, deep uh, neurological problems. Now, they are going to sooner rather than later invent uh, some sort of machine or x-ray that allows them to diagnose CTE uh, while you're still alive. And if they can do that, and uh, and it can be made uh, it can be mass manufactured and be made cheap enough for even high school districts to be able to do medical tests on players. Uh, and then they can't insure players, say, who are showing early signs of CTE as 10th graders. Uh, that's when you're going to see this existential crisis hit the sport. But what I think it's going to do in the short term is it's going to drive tackle football away from the suburbs and away from the middle classes and it's going to become even more of a gladiatorial sport than it is today. You know, like really depending more and more on on poor black labor, largely from what was the old Jim Crow South, uh, to be able to supply the the bodies 
that get destroyed for our Sunday amusement. Exactly right. And I think we're already beginning to see that. And the other side of that is, I would imagine the NFL suits are also worried about how many top shelf young athletes are going to simply say no to football and instead pursue basketball or baseball or some other sport. I mean, you can you can look at many uh, top shelf NFL players of the past who had tremendous career, potential careers in other sports that they turned down in order to pursue the NFL. I think that increasingly recently we've seen it with Kyler Murray, the Heisman Trophy winner who almost, who well, who did sign with the Oakland Athletics to play baseball but eventually has decided to pursue football. But that's an outlier because I think he's kind of a number one type of pick who will make many millions of dollars in the NFL. But the majority of those players, I think, are going to have second thoughts about going to the NFL, and that might actually change the dynamics of some other sports. That's absolutely right, Um, and particularly at the quarterback position because that's where you see the doubling up of uh, baseball, football, and and people like Russell Wilson. Uh, the quarterback star of the Seattle Seahawks. I mean, baseball was a viable option for him. And the Kyler Murray story is going to be very interesting. People are going to track that very closely uh, and and judge it not only on the basis of how good a quarterback he is in the National Football League, but also on the basis of, like, did he make the right decision and will he think he made the right decision uh, when it's all said and done for him, particularly since he was poised to make a tremendous amount of money playing for the Oakland A's But in Kyler Murray's mind, and this is true about baseball, baseball is a cruel sport. You know, in three years time, Kyler Murray could still be playing triple A ball uh, in a small town in in uh, in Ohio or South Carolina. Uh, Meanwhile, if he goes to the NFL, he gets the spotlight right away. And I think that was perhaps too much to resist. No doubt. And the guaranteed money, signing bonuses, endorsements, and all of the rest of that, I think we can all understand uh, you know, his reasoning. But before we jump to the break, I just want to ask you very quickly about Michael Bennett. Uh, what was your experience working with Michael Bennett? For, for people who don't know him, uh, he is one of the most um, interesting and thoughtful and intelligent and, and militant and committed uh, football players slash activist. And uh, your, your, your book that you co-authored with him, Things That Make white people uncomfortable is really quite, um, I, I mean, I don't know, what's the word? It, it, it's it's unlike any other book you're likely to pick up. So tell us about Michael Bennett. What's he like? Oh, he's just an amazing guy. He's like one of the, he's the funniest guy in any room he's in, but he's also really humble. He asks people a lot of questions about themselves. He's he's unlike any, certainly any big time athlete. I've had the the either privilege or not such a big privilege to have met <laughs> in my time. I mean, he he was just wonderful to work with. And, you know, the key for writing a book like that is to not lose his voice. Um, and, and cause he's so funny. And so oftentimes like that was the big challenge in putting the book together is to make sure that his voice really shined through on every page because it's a powerful voice and, and it's his ideas. You know, I, I, I was just the midwife of that book. Uh, he, he was the one who gave birth to it all the way. And it was an honor to do, honestly, like it was, it's an honor to be chosen, to be asked to do it with him, and I hope people give it a chance and read it because he gets deep, not just on issues of, of football, but also he talks about intersectionality. He talks about Palestine. Uh, he talks about Angela Davis, Fred Hampton. He talks about just a whole eclectic group of influences that have made up his radical thought. 
absolute must read. Definitely get yourselves a copy. Things that make white people uncomfortable. That was co-authored with Michael Bennett, the uh, the NFL star. So we're gonna take a break. On the other side of the break, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the NCAA. Uh, we recently saw the college basketball tournament wrap up, and um, that of course raises some very interesting questions about student athletes and how they're exploited. I also want to talk a little bit about uh, an incident that happened in the major leagues last year that I think really is instructive and 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 really raises some questions moving forward for the 2019 season. Uh, that and a whole lot more with Dave Zirin. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Once I had my heroes, once I had my dreams, but all of that is back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Dave Zirin. Again, you got to get yourselves a copy of the book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, co-authored with the great Michael Bennett. Uh, so before the break, Dave, we were we were talking a lot about the NFL and about baseball, and I, or sorry, about football in general, and I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about baseball. Um, 
a couple of weeks ago on this show, I had a baseball writer, Stephen Goldman, and we talked a little bit about this incident that happened last year in Milwaukee with Josh Hader. And I'm really interested to get your take on that, because when that happened, and again, I guess I'll just recap it very quickly. Josh Hader is absolutely dominant relief pitcher, probably the most dominant relief pitcher in baseball today. Uh, Absolutely tore up the league last year. And during the All-Star break, uh, the revelation of an incredibly racist and homophobic, really quite awful and vile tweets that he had put out there when he was 17, 18 years old. Uh, But the real story for me, and the one that I'd really want to get your comment on, Dave, is what happened when Josh came back? Because when when Josh Hader returned to the mound, this is in front of the home, uh, home crowd in Milwaukee, he received a standing ovation. Now, it's easy to say that that standing ovation was simply a way of showing that you're behind your hometown player, that you support him, etc. But I have to tell you that as I watched that live, I really felt like that was a MAGA moment, that there was a lot more going on there than simply supporting your local favorite. So I want to get your read on that incident, how you interpreted that and what you think that says about baseball and about, well, about Milwaukee, perhaps, but about baseball. Well, I thought, I mean, I'm reading this a little, I'm getting this out of order chronologically, but it was basically the Brett Kavanaugh hearings in baseball form, uh, is this idea from a very hard right-wing perspective, this idea of we have to protect our fragile white boys from any sort of criticism and anything they might have done as a teenager has to be above reproach because and this is where the argument goes, who among us hasn't blank? You know, when it was Brett Kavanaugh, who among us have, hasn't uh, been part of, a, of an assault at a party, a drunken assault at a party, who among us hasn't uh, said racist and homophobic things as a teenager? And what that approach does is it actually shields <laughs> um, white youth from any sort of introspection about what they might have done and why it might be wrong. And, it be, and it's one of those things that is a common trope on, certainly on social media, um, and certainly in the, I would call it the Joe Rogan sphere, uh, where any sort of criticism of whether it's hate speech or hate actions, um, the criticism is as bad or worse than the actions themselves. Because to even raise these criticisms, you're somehow either stifling speech or attacking somebody from when they're young or or, or, or bullying them somehow. And, and it, 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 to me, it's just a big dodge. And so I thought that they did Josh Hader no favors by giving him that standing ovation because the point really should have been like why he said what he said and what he thinks now, you know, especially now that he works in this extremely, you know, um, diverse multiracial environment and playing for a, in a sport that bathes itself in the memory of people like Jackie Robinson and Roberto Clemente. And that's another part of this too, is because even though Major League Baseball, they retired the number 42 and they do their... Uh, you know, Jackie Robinson game at the start of the season and whatnot. The fact of the matter is that this was, is, and has always been a deeply conservative sport. Deeply conservative. It's why, you know, Latino players can't even flip a bat without getting a ball thrown at their head at 100 miles an hour. And the, the conservative, unwritten rules of the sport have always served as a way to marginalize dissenters. Uh, and think of people like Jim Bouton or Bill Lee, baseball pitchers who uh, their careers ended before their time because they were outspoken. 
because they uh, talk to the media openly about their marijuana use and their opposition to right-wing politicians. I mean, this is very common. Uh, or the experience that uh, I believe his name is Bruce Maxwell received when he took a knee during the anthem, uh, catcher for the Oakland A's. Uh, th- these are all things that I think make up the story of baseball. Now, I don't think I can pick on Milwaukee directly because I think this is true of a lot of towns. But I will say that when Barry Bonds was going on his home run chase um, of first Babe Ruth and then Henry Aaron, I went to a game in Milwaukee and the the hatred of Bonds in Milwaukee was so intensely over the top that you got the feeling that it, – like it had not just racial undertones, it had racial overtones to it, you and know, it's, it's like nobody had to agree about anything. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like Martin Luther King said when he marched through Chicago about about the kind of racism that he encountered in the Upper Midwest and how it was in many ways more vicious than anything he knew in the South. That's right. That's um, that 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 that's the King Chicago story and. The, the, the Bonds reaction, I, I still like shiver when I think about it because I think about like uh, European soccer games where bananas are thrown at black players and people make monkey noises. I felt like it was skirting so close to that edge that it was a little bit frightening. And it's like he hits home runs and he, like most players at the time, may be chemically helped. I mean, wh- wh- why does this upset you that much? I mean, just so- exactly. Uh, you know, the other the other part of the hater story to me that was that was so revealing was that there was no th- there was no sense that hater really had to do anything other than this kind of perfunctory apology. And that was so it, w- it was so strange to me. Not strange, I guess it's somewhat predictable, but it was so disappointing to me that uh, no real sports writers, with the exception of, you know, maybe you and a handful of others, really engaged with the issue in, in its totality. I mean, there was, you know, talk about whether or not this was inappropriate. That was certainly something that was discussed. There was talk about whether or not, you know, Hader should have apologized more forcefully or whatever, but very, very little comment about the sort of sociological questions and and, and dynamics at play there, because to me, that was one of the most revealing moments I can remember in, in, in Major League Baseball, which is a very insular, very white sport. And very local sport also. I mean, it's a regional... Local, for all the talk of it being a national pastime, it's much more of a regional sport than a national sport, especially now. I mean, I mean the World Cup games. I mean, the Women's World Cup final did better ratings than the World Series, and it's just it, it, it. There's a different kind of embrace of sports happening in this country. And you talk about a sport with an existential crisis. We spoke about the National Football League. If you look at the average age of a Major League Baseball fan, I mean, their existential crisis is writ large. I mean, they're handing out these huge contracts to people like, you know, Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, the three of them combined, you know, it's over a billion dollars this offseason. But at the same time, you have like you have like dozens and dozens of free agents. You could refer to them almost as like Major League Baseball's middle class uh, who haven't been signed yet. And so, you know, they're they're operating. I I think it's uh, and I've gotten in some arguments with folks about this, but I think it's like a like a reflection of neoliberalism in terms of how these owners are running their teams. You, you have it like a couple of people on the top and then you just go for the cheapest labor possible. 
and you don't really care so much about wins and losses so much because the game really isn't for the fans. You care about public subsidies, you care about your cable deal, and you care about you know whatever kind of luxury boxes you're trying to sell because that's what really affects your bottom line. Yeah, and the and it's all about the, the the revenue sharing and the way that the revenue sharing is structured such that you don't have to put a winning product on the field to make a ton of money. Uh, there's that element, and I 100% agree. It's the uh, it's it's the baseball it's the baseball equivalent of what in you know in the labor world you'd call the race to the bottom. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. Um, now, the 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 last question I just want to ask you uh, uh, about the. I guess related back to the hater uh, incident, baseball in some ways, well, in I think quite obvious ways, has managed to kind of avoid the 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 Trump trap. You know, it's managed to kind of skirt around Trump in a way that obviously the NFL and uh, to a, to a large extent the NBA have not in and quite different quite differently the NFL and the NBA have handled it in very different ways I mean as far as the NFL goes Trump has inserted himself into the conversation as far as the NBA goes he's had Twitter fights with LeBron he's made all kinds of comments and I think we all know what the uh, subtext of that is but baseball has somehow avoided Trump why is that well baseball's avoided Trump for a couple of reasons one Trump uh, is all first of all Trump is all about the ratings and he's all about the national projection of himself. And you're just not going to get that through baseball. In a lot of ways, it's a backhanded uh, insult to baseball uh, that, that Trump hasn't glommed onto it because there's no percentage and no win for it to, for him to do that. The second reason is that, you know, how do, how do presidents in baseball usually interact? It's when presidents go throughout the first pitch at a game. You know, something presidents have done for for decades. That's not something Donald Trump is going to do because if you've ever seen a picture of him throwing a ball, he looks foolish and he's not exact. I don't want to shock anybody, but he doesn't exactly have the best sense of humor about himself. So him going out there and looking foolish is not something he wants to do. So he stays away from baseball like that. And then the last reason is other than the person I mentioned before, Bruce Maxwell, who's not even in the major leagues anymore. He's 28 and he plays for Aceras de Monclava of the Mexican League. So they, he found his way out of baseball. Uh, gee, I wonder why. Um, other than him taking a knee, you haven't seen uh, the movement against police violence and racial inequity find its way into Major League Baseball. Yeah, and of course, I think a lot of that has to do with the simple and obvious fact that there's just so few African American players in yeah. in in Major League Baseball. Uh, the predominantly the players uh, of color are, are from Latin America, from the Caribbean, and uh, they generally, I think, for various reasons, are going to be less likely to speak on these issues for all the reasons that probably are self evident. Well, I, I, that's it's two things. One, that's that's a great point. Second thing is when I first started, when I was first started doing sports writing, um, a ton of Caribbean and Latino players were actually being outspoken. This was before uh, Twitter and everything, so these things don't get amplified and remembered, but they were very like outspoken around the issue of Vieques and uh, getting the U.S. Navy out of Vieques. Remember, Vieques si, Marina no, was a big slogan in the, in the mid-2000s. And, you know, and they were, they were getting around that and they were signing signature ad campaigns and there, so there was this activity at work. And then when, uh, Arizona tried to pass SB 1070, when they did pass SB 1070, 
Uh, you had a lot of Latino players speak out about immigrant rights at that time, which I wrote, covered at the time. But you, you just you're not going to see. I mean, let's be honest, like the, the the amplification of Black Lives Matter has been in the African-American community when it comes to sports. And when you do have so few African-American players in Major League Baseball at this point, even though some of the most prominent players like Mookie Betts um, are African-American, you know, you're just not going to have the same uh, kind of, of reflection. I mean, you're not going to have like uh, this clubhouse understanding that there's black people who built this sport. And that's the reason why people have benefited so greatly from the sport even though there's truth to that, it doesn't have that daily kind of resonance as it does in basketball and football, which are so dependent on African-American labor. And speaking of labor, I know I said I was going to move on from baseball, but I do have one more labor question. Uh, interesting story uh, just a, about a month or so ago that uh, the Toronto Blue Jays decided, I guess unilaterally, to increase the salaries of their minor league players by upwards of 50%, which is a pretty significant increase. Now, uh, something that I think most people, including baseball fans, probably don't realize is that minor league baseball players make next to nothing. Yeah. They are legal. Legally, they are legally allowed to be paid less than the minimum wage because they are legally defined as seasonal workers. They are uh, routinely exploited in the worst kind of ways with very few, if any, labor protections and very few, if any, prospects of, uh, you know, a pension or anything like that. So I want to get your I want to get your comment on minor league baseball and the way in which these players are treated and whether or not you think that with the Blue Jays and some of these other teams starting to talk about these issues, whether we might finally see a change in that. Yeah, I mean, the change is going to happen because the, these players are starting to organize themselves. Currently, they're not represented by the union. I mean, that's one of the, one of the issues is that they don't have collective representation, but they're starting to organize themselves to get that collective representation, and it is very needed. You mentioned the seasonal work piece. I mean, it also applies to issues like, like health care, like the ability to travel with their families. I mean, it is, it is a pauper's life to play minor league baseball. And then people wonder why players try to suit up with all kinds of drugs to make that leap to the major leagues. I mean, the quality of life difference, I mean, can be measured in not just hundreds of thousands of dollars, but in you know, how you're able to actually build a family and have a life. So there, there, that, that reckoning is coming. That, that what you mentioned is, I think, just the first step, because I do see a lot of people starting to organize around this question. And speaking of exploitation, I think no conversation would be, uh, well, in, in regard to exploitation in sports, would be complete without a thorough takedown of the NCAA. Uh, the, the, the NCAA, which is the governing body for uh, collegiate athletics, um, they have a very serious problem on their hands. And that problem is the fact that people are finally, finally beginning to talk about the taboo subject that these, that these athletes who generate billions of dollars for the NCAA, that these athletes should get some kind of compensation. Uh, the entire structure of the NCAA is built upon this uncompensated exploitation of these student athletes who quote unquote should be so grateful for for the educations that they're getting. Uh, so I want to just ask you as an introduction to that issue, um, 
what's your what's your take on the way in which student athletes are being exploited? And I, I, I mean, I guess the real question there is, is there a solution in your mind to the kinds of exploitation that these athletes suffer? There is a solution. The solution is on the horizon. Um, it's called the, there's something being formed called the Historic Basketball League. Uh, whose commissioner is former NBA player David West, who's I've interviewed. He's a very political guy. And they're trying to like reform the entire model by building a basketball league outside of the NCAA that pays players and partners them with universities so they can go to school and make a salary at the same time. And the games would be played over the summer, and then they go to school during the winter. Now, can this work? I think that's less important than that people people are feeling kind of chesty and bold enough to say the NCAA is a is a cartel that at some point is going to crack and so something's going to need, need to be there to pick up the pieces. You see this with the NBA investing in the G League, formerly known as the D League. They're actually putting more into this minor league system uh, for the purposes of developing talent and uh, bringing in players who may not want to go to college or maybe just may not want to be exploited which is completely there right at the same time, of course. So there, there's a lot that's bad about the NCAA uh, in terms of its relationship to its players. I've called it a mechanism for stealing black wealth because that's who ends up getting taken to the cleaners. I mean, it's no coincidence that the two revenue-producing sports that make these billions of dollars are also the two sports, football and basketball, that are so dependent on black labor. And they're easiest to exploit, easiest to take advantage of. But what the NCAA has does do, has done is that it's also put themselves in a position where if even a few of these players, and we've seen examples of this, but when, if they go on strike, if they refuse to work, uh, the entire system just like it crumbles. Like you saw this at Missouri in 2015, where uh, the players refused to play a game to protest racism on campus. And the school president was fired because it was going to cost them a million dollars a week if they forfeited games. And the school president all of a sudden looked very expendable. Well, isn't that interesting? Because the school president, in fact, is more expendable than a star player on one of their teams. Um, now, I, I, I want to also just ask you, well, you brought up the NBA, and we've been talking a lot about these issues of racism, and one that I think is, is worth noting, and you just wrote a column about this. Um, we're recording here on, on April 9th, so by the time you all are hearing this, this is, uh, I guess, a few days old, but um, you, you wrote a piece about Kyle Korver. Kyle Korver, an NBA player, a white NBA player, who has recently published an essay that I think is not only worthy, uh, you know, noteworthy, but really deserves to be read and, and absorbed and, and, and mulled over and then read again. Can you tell us a little bit about what Corver wrote and um, why it's so important that he wrote what he wrote? Wow. I mean, it's Kyle Corver, for folks who don't know, he's played in the NBA for 15 years. And he's wrestled with this subject for 15 years, he says. And he's finally come to some conclusions. And it's a pretty remarkable article. What he does, what he's doing is he's actually putting down a throwing down a gauntlet to other white athletes to actually listen to black players and their experiences. And then he, he says, like basically what he's he's arguing is that it's not enough to be non-racist. You actually have to be anti-racist. And you need to act in ways uh, that that fight racism, whether it's has to do with who you elect to office, 
whether it has to do with the protests that you offer solidarity to, or he even mentions the R word, reparations. And he says, this is not, what's so good, he has this great line in it where he says, it's not about guilt, it's about responsibility. Like taking on that whole thing about, oh, you're just a guilty white person, whatever. He actually makes this very cogent argument that, you know, the players built this league and black players built this league. And as a white player, it's like that that, that has to matter to you um, in terms of your approach to the game. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pull up this one quote, which I thought was just so, I mean, it's really good. People got to read this thing. Um, there's so many quotes here I love. This is, this is the one that he wrote. People of color, they've built this league. They've grown this league. People of color made this league into what it is today. And I guess I just wanted to say that if you can't find it in your heart to support them now, and I mean actively support them, if the best that you can do for their cause is to passively tolerate it, if that's the standard we're going to hold ourselves to, to blend in and opt out, well, that's not good enough. It's not even close. So I just read that and I was like, Yahtzee, this is great stuff because I've been waiting for a while for a white male athlete to make a statement like this in, in this era. I mean, you've seen a lot of heroic white female athletes step up, like Megan Rapinoe, players in the WNBA, but but you know, but like waiting for someone like Aaron Rodgers to say something that's beyond just you know, oh, I support their right to you know exercise their freedom of speech. It's like, come on, do better than that. These are your teammates. People always talk about how your brothers in the locker room. How can you be brothers in the locker room and not care what your brother has to deal with once the pads come off? So to have Kyle Korver say this, man, I mean, for me, it was like someone opened the window on a beautiful, windy spring day and you got the fresh air just rushing into your lungs. Been waiting for this for a long time. There was a really ugly incident in Utah not that long ago involving one of the mega stars of the NBA, uh, Westbrook from from Oklahoma City Thunder, who was... I, I don't know what what would be the right word. He verbally attacked, assault, verbally assaulted with, uh, from what sources say, was a number of really racist and 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 quite vile threats and 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 comments from people in the stands. And then a couple of weeks later, a player from that team, from that city, is writing this piece. I think it speaks to some of the dynamics in the NBA and some of the dynamics between the NBA's players and its fans. Absolutely. And he talks about that uh, in the article about that being one of the thing that really spurred him to write this. He plays for Utah. So just that experience uh, and going through it and listening to his teammates, that was a big deal. He also talks about one of his teammates, Tabo Cephalosha, who had his leg broken by the NYPD a couple of years ago when they were both playing for the Atlanta Hawks. And he, he's very honest about it. And it's really good. It's like he writes that you know, Tabo is one of his best friends. They've had tons of discussions. And yet his first instinct when he heard that Tabo had his leg broken by the NYPD is what, what did Tabo do to make that happen? And he's trying to unlearn that way of thinking when it comes to the police and the black community. And that in and of itself is a radical act. 
Yeah, and the NBA, it's it, the NBA. I think to some extent should be commended for the fact that uh, its commissioner and its its leadership has been much more forthright about uh, supporting players having the freedom to speak on political issues. I remember, uh, the, I believe it was the Phoenix Suns who uh, wore "I can't, I, I, I can't breathe" T-shirts after the murder of Eric Garner by the NYPD. Uh, you've seen a number of other uh, players, both high profile and not so high profile, making statements and and teams making statements. So uh, I guess I I guess the question is, why does the NBA, why does the NBA got this issue so much more right than the other leagues? Well, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons, and this is going to sound a little bit cynical, that there's a cynical reason and an awesome reason. So we got to go through those. Uh, The cynical reason is I think the NBA very much is embracing what you know Madison Avenue calls uh, woke advertising. Like they like being projected and seen as the woke league. It's why their their audience skews decades younger than Major League Baseball's average audiences. They're viewed as people who are young, hip, and get it. And of course, the younger you get in this country, the more uh, progressive or even radical politically you get. I mean, we see that in every poll on every possible subject matter. You also see that when it's like young Jews on Israel, young Cubans on Cuba, normalization. It's just, it's different the younger you get. And, uh, and the NBA wants to appeal to that. So they want to look woke. And that's the cynical read. The, the read that I think is also as or more important is that by far the most influential player in the NBA is of course LeBron James. And LeBron James has embraced this idea of being an outspoken athlete has embraced this idea of walking in the legacy of Muhammad Ali. He's even producing a documentary about Muhammad Ali that's going to air next month on cable, uh, which I'm, I'm really it's, – it's called uh, What's My Name? And I'm curious how that's going to be. But that's the kind of ideas. That's the kind of uh, lexicon he's trying to embrace and articulate. And I think when LeBron does it, what it does is it supplies a certain cover to all the other athletes if they want to be political. So then presumably the question is, where are the other leaders in the other sports? Yeah, that's the big question. I mean, we'd be talking about someone like Mike Trout stepping up with a statement like Kyle Korver's. Uh, Wouldn't that be something? Or we'd be talking about Tom Brady, uh, who's made some cryptically progressive comments in the years since he was seen with his Make America Great Again hat in his locker. But it would be about him being much more outspoken as he enters the twilight of his career, if that twilight's ever actually going to come. He may just play forever. Um, but th- these things are all, I think, really important. And you see this historically also, that when you have like a Bill Russell speak out, when you have a, a Jim Brown speak out, it provides a cover for like the kind of marginal players like the Bruce Maxwell, who we mentioned earlier, who finds, or who finds themselves out of a job. You know, when you look at the legacy of uh, race and sports, you find that uh, Madison Avenue, as you just mentioned, has had a way of kind of transforming or rewriting the history into a history of kind of, uh, you know, uh, reluctance and then embrace and acceptance. But the truth is that in all of the sports, baseball and, and, and all of the others, 
it's never really been like that. It's been struggle, painful struggle, struggle that has often cost people their careers, cost people their uh, mental health, cost people their lives in some cases. So I think that uh, just in closing, I just want to get you to talk a little bit about the way in which history is written about these issues and the responsibility that we have to tell the real history. Yeah, you just said it times a thousand. I mean, what what we find so much when it comes to radical sports history is that it either gets um, buried or the political teeth get extracted. So you either don't even learn about certain people, uh, like uh, a woman named Roseanne Robinson, who was, who in 1959 was the first person to not stand up for the national anthem. Uh, she was a triple jumper. She did it in protest of... Uh, U.S. foreign policy in the Cold War. You don't learn about Rose Robinson, uh, but you might learn about Muhammad Ali, but you learn about Muhammad Ali in a way that, you know, is incredibly Disney-fied, like when Cornel West talks about the Santa Clausification of Dr. Martin Luther King. You can certainly apply that to Muhammad Ali. And that's why it's all the more important to tell the stories of these athletes, warts and all, uh, so people, first of all, we, so we don't put them on the kind of pedestal that makes you feel like, oh, I could never be like that person. But also, um, in, it, it restores their humanity. Um, and I think when you have the Santa Clausification of these athletes or the burying of these athletes, it serves a common purpose. And that is that it instills passivity in the consumer, which is the opposite of what these athletes wanted to do. Like they wanted to use their platform to get people to act, not be passive to get off the couch and get in the game. And the game doesn't mean what's on the field, it means the political game. And so getting into the action, getting into the fray is what these athletes have fought for. And it's important that we keep that legacy alive. No doubt about it. Very well said. I want to thank you, Dave Zirin, for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Listeners, uh, you got to follow all of Dave's work. Truly, I don't know of a, I don't know of anyone who does what he does better than he does. So you have to follow his column at the Nation. You should listen to the podcast Edge of Sports. You can follow all of the writing at edgeofsports.com and on Twitter at Edge of Sports. And of course, most importantly, the new book Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, co-authored with Michael Bennett. Dave Zirin, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. It was really a lot of fun. Oh no, it's a blast for me. Thanks so much, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always, and we'll chat again real soon.